mine has been messing up, and uh, apparently it's not cued in real good. Man, we were singing so loud, I don't ever look at the screen, but the screen was bouncing. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's shaking the house down now. Good job. Good to see everybody today. You're singing, you just sang so well. It just sounded so good up here that I wanted to hear a little bit more of it. So I, I peeked over at Blake and I said, man, can you just bust into that chorus once? And he's like, ah, you start it and I'll do it. So we did it. You did it. And that was great. So thank you so much. Go with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter number 5. We are in a series um, entitled, at least for now, you guys know how I am with titles. We may come up with a different one later if the, if the topic, subject matter shifts a bit. But currently the subject or rather the title, is Creating a Gospel-Centric Culture. And we, you know, churches and movements get, they get built on a lot of stuff. You know, you can, you can have a lot of different topics as your platform. You can have a lot of other motivations. Um, but it's important that, that we, we stay focused and intentional about maintaining the gospel as the centerpiece of all that we do. And that's not going to happen if we don't do it on purpose. If we, you know, if you just if you just let if you just let communities and and and, and people groups um, just gravitate in whatever direction that we naturally would gravitate toward, we'd all wind up in some on some hobby horse soapbox somewhere, wouldn't we? I mean, I got plenty of them. Somebody asked me the other day if I was a if I was a conspiracy theorist. I said, "Am I a conspiracy theorist? Are you freaking kidding me? I love conspiracies. <laughs> I mean, I can spend a lot of time on that stuff." Um, but, uh, but the, but the gospel is what matters and, um, you know, we can have all kinds of theories and views and even different belief systems, but, but everything that we are has to be rooted in the gospel. So that's the, that's the intent of this series. We are, we have made it to Romans chapter five and uh, I'm going to read a few verses actually beginning in chapter three, start with me in verse 23, I'm sorry, ver chapter four, verse 23, uh, Romans chapter four, verse number 23. Uh, says, now it was not written for, for his sake alone. It's, it's a reference to Abraham. This is what was previously stated, and we're going to re review this in just a moment, but it wasn't written for Abraham's sake alone, uh, that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so I'm not going to preach the sermon yet, but chapter the introduction to chapter 5 gives us the, the indication um, that we have to at some point realize the gospel was not just that moment when we first came to know Christ as Savior. It's a present possession that we hold as believers in Christ. The gospel defines me. It's who I am. It's, 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 the, it's the access, as he used that word access right here in verse number two, that I have to God. I don't have access to God because I'm good. I have access to God because of his grace. And so the gospel becomes everything that we are as believers. And so today, I'm going to back up just a little bit, build a foundation, but then I'm going to introduce you because we're shifting gears into a bit of a different section in the book of Romans. And so pray with me, and we're going to get into this just as fast as we possibly can. Fast as you can listen, I'm going to talk, okay? So just be ready. Here we go. Father, thank you so much for this time. 
we come to you today as needy people. We may not appear to be needy on the outside, but in the, on the inside, we have deep needs. And so we pray that your spirit would reach down into our hearts. I pray that you'd minister to us at whatever level we are in this journey. I pray that you'd speak to us, Father. If somebody's here today and they have never even entered into a relationship with you, they've never trusted in you, maybe they've heard the story, maybe they could recite the gospel as I could at 19, but they have never put their faith in Christ. I pray today would be the day they'd step over the threshold from unbelief into belief. And then, Lord, those of us that have been on this journey for a while, we need you as well. We pray that you'd meet every single need of every heart in this room. You're our healer. You're our savior. You're the miracle worker that we look to today in faith, believing that what you've promised, you're so far above and able to perform. Lord, we glorify you and honor you and give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to review these definitions that we went over last week. I know everybody gets just super excited over definitions, so I'm a people pleaser, and I wanted to bring some definitions to you today just to please the crowd, but uh, it's important. You know, sometimes we read over words in the Bible, and um, some more modern translations, I like the New Living Translation for my personal daily reading, um, but like the New Living Translation, for example, often takes the words out and just somewhat gives you the definition of what they mean, which is good. If you had one thing over the other, I'd rather you have the definition than to, <laughs> than to understand terminology, right? It's more important to know what the term means than to know the term itself. However, I think it's important that, that we retain certain words within the Christian faith, such as justification, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. These words that we find in the book of, in the book of Romans um, and other places in the Bible, uh, they are descriptive terms to explain on a technical level uh, what takes place at the moment when a person puts their faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Okay, so all of these words that we defined last week are descriptive terms, and that's why in the introduction last Sunday, I took a moment to explain what we mean when we say saved. Sometimes, you know, you might just look at a person and say, are you saved? Well, depending on what their background is, they probably could maybe not know what in the world you're talking about, right? Am I saved? What do you mean am I saved? I'm not even drowning. What's going on? You know, I don't know what you mean by saved, so I defined that. What do we mean when we say saved? Well, when we use the word saved, we're talking about the, the moment when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said to, John, uh, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. That's another way to describe uh, being saved. We have words like uh, justification, so you could say, well, that's, I was justified. Well, awesome. You know, justified from what? But, but saved sort of encompasses all of what takes place when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ. These terms are more technical and describe on, on, a, on, a, on a more logistic level what takes place when a person puts their faith in Jesus. So definition number one, we talked about the word redemption. The word redemption is the release of people, animals, or property from bondage through the payment of a price. And I use the good old redneck illustration of pawning a shotgun at the pawn shop. Y'all remember that? Such an intriguing illustration, by the way. It takes a brilliant mind to come up with things like this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's the same thing if you went to the pawn shop and pawned your, pawned your shotgun or your chainsaw uh, to get money. You put it into hock, and you have a certain amount of time to, to redeem it uh, from, from being in hock or being pawned. And so the word redemption literally in the same way means that a price was paid, the redemption price, the, the redemption payment was met so that that item or that person can be released from bondage. That means that the bond holder no longer has a right to claim that piece of property. 
Okay, so God uses the term redemption in relation to our trusting in Christ as Savior. And, and, and the spiritual application is that he redeemed us from the curse of the law. He purchased us. He bought us back where we, we are no longer in debt to the law. That's what Paul's teaching in Romans. We don't, we're not in debt to the law. Uh, he redeemed us from, from the bondage of, of, of the enemy himself, from the power of darkness. Uh, Paul later went on to write in the, in the Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, that we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. So redemption means that the price has been met and the bondholder no longer has a right to claim ownership of this property. It's a beautiful truth. And, uh, you know, if you guys weren't so dignified, you might say amen or get happy about that because it's a reference to what happened when you trusted in Jesus as your Savior. Second word that we, we defined was the word justification. Uh, justification is a Christian's judicial acceptance by God as not guilty because his sins are not counted against him. Now think about that. It's a Christian's judicial acceptance by God as not guilty. It's the judicial action of granting a pardon to the guilty party. And so when we use the word justified, we understand that when God says we've been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that means that God as the judge of the universe has granted a pardon to those who put their faith in Jesus. We're all sinners. We're all broken. We've all established this in the book of Romans. He said, you are no better than anybody, right? In the grand scheme of eternity, you are no better than anybody. Now, we're dealing with some laws on Wednesday night. If you come to church on Wednesday night, we're doing a follow-up, and I'm dealing with different types of laws in the, in the Bible on Wednesday night and where they fit into the economy of Christianity. But, and, and, and so my point in saying that is I recognize, and it's, and it's perfectly right that we judge people in this world. I'm saying our judicial system, that doesn't mean we let people off of crimes, right? I always appreciate when I get pulled over and the police officer gives me some grace and mercy, but, but usually they don't know what those terms mean when I ask for it. You know, say, hey, I, hey, boss, how about a little grace? He's like, what? Here's your ticket. You can pay it online or, anyway. Uh, but we understand that in the world there are still ramifications for certain actions. That's not to say that, that we, even as Christians, look, whatever you sow, when Paul wrote in Galatians, whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. That was written to believers, by the way. And so you can sow things in this world, you can do things in this world, and, and you'll have to live with the consequences of the choices that you've made. That doesn't change. But we're talking about in the economy of God, in the grand landscape of eternal things, in the courtroom of heaven, if you will, justification means for those who put their faith in Jesus, God has granted a pardon. You've been justified, you have been pardoned, you have been released from guilt. God has cleansed you, God has erased the record. If there was a record book at one time where all of our sins were recorded, when we put our faith in Jesus, God, through the book, in the depths of the sea of his forgetfulness, they're gone. Again, I wouldn't get excited about this if I were you. It's just introduction. These are just definitions, okay? But these definitions describe in a detailed way what happens when we trust in Jesus. The word propitiation is used a lot here. The, the word propitiation um, means simply the appeasement of wrath or guilt. Um, and so all of our guilt, all of our wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. We read that in Isaiah chapter 53 and other places today. Anytime you see the word propitiation, it's like the Old Testament concept of a scapegoat. It means that our guilt, our penalty, our punishment was placed 
on the Lamb of God on the cross, and he took our place. He became the propitiation for our sins. And then definition number four is the word imputation. The word imputation or impute is the act of reckoning a legal debit or credit to an account. Um, So imputation is like depositing money into a savings account. Now, here's why all these things are important. By the way, if you're kind of new here, this is Sunday school. In just a minute, we're going to shift into the regular sermon. So that's why everybody's kind of just chill right now. They're about to go crazy, okay? They're about to act like they believe these things. So, um, but the word, the word imputation is like depositing money into a savings account. This is why I took the time, uh, I believe last Sunday, to explain that, that, that it takes pureness, it takes holiness, it takes righteousness to enter into heaven. And everybody looked at me bug-eyed, like, well, none of, we've already said none of us are perfect, nobody's sinless. Right, that's the point. But Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus lived on this earth, and the Bible says he was tempted, he was tested, he was tried in every arena that we are tested in. He was tempted in all points like as we are, and yet without sin. That means Jesus passed every test that we have failed. That means that Jesus, when, when, when the scribes and the Pharisees said, have you come to destroy the law? Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. No one can do it. Nobody, no human being can perfectly keep the law except for God himself. So God became flesh and God fulfilled the law in the life of Jesus Christ. And Jesus died as the sinless, blemishless, spotless lamb of God and took our place. And so the word imputation, we understand uh, that, that, that God imputed all of our debt, all of our sin to the account of Jesus Christ. And when he died on the cross, the Bible says that he took all of the wrath that stood against us. He took all of the laws and all of the ordinances and all of the transgressions that you and I have committed. Jesus took all of that on himself. And here's what Paul said, he nailed it to his cross. And then when he was resurrected, this is why Paul uses this language, that in his resurrection we have peace with him because we've been justified and God took all of our judgment, put that on Jesus and took all of Jesus' goodness and put that on us. That's propitiation. That's what it means that God deposited all the goodness of Jesus on our account. And now I get to go to heaven, not because I'm a good person, but because Jesus is perfect and holy and sinless and completed every aspect of righteousness, even, by the way, being baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he told John the Baptist, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. Hold that in the back of your mind because we're coming back to it at another time, not today. But in every aspect, Jesus fulfilled all that was necessary to ace the test of holiness. And so when we trust in him, the Bible says that, that God imputes to our account, he deposits the righteousness of Christ to our account. And then we're given some examples of this. Uh, we're given examples of what it looks like to be justified by faith. Are y'all with me? Is this boring? Because I can get to the other stuff, and it's it's more exciting than this. I just I'm trying to I'm trying to read the wind, guys. What are we doing here? Are y'all good? Okay. So so he then he goes into giving us examples of being justified by faith. He uses the patriarch Abraham. Now notice what he says about Abraham in chapter four, verse number one. It says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, 
But not, by the way, y'all get spooked out by social media reading your thoughts. Am I the only one? Okay. Because I've been preaching this, and I know I ain't just been thinking about it. I've been saying it too, but now I'm getting ads on Facebook uh, for a t-shirt that says, Grace, lest anyone should boast. I didn't search for it. It's, they're listening, guys, is what I'm trying to tell you. Okay, so you never, just to, just to quell your thoughts, you never have to question again if I have a conspiratorial mindset. I absolutely do. Big brothers will watch them, is what I'm going to say. All right, anyway, here we go. Back to the text, all right? Back to the text. Uh, it says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It's a question. He's asking the Jews, what does the scripture say about Abraham? Well, here's the answer. Here's what the scriptures say in Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There's that word account. It's the same as the word impute, means that God deposited righteousness on his account. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are count, not counted as grace, but as debt. Now, now, if, if you are familiar whatsoever with, with the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, then, uh, and, and if you were a Bible critic, for example, you would read what was just written in, in Romans uh, concerning Abraham, and, and, and your critical mind, your skeptical mind would say, well, there, there's a contradiction here. There's a contradiction in the story. Because if you read on down, if we, if we read in the, in the rest of, uh, of the account of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. Notice verse number 19. It, it talks about the story of Abraham when God promised Abraham that him and Sarah would have a child in their old age. Y'all remember that? The promise that Isaac would be born to Abraham and Sarah when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was around 90 years old. And it says in verse 19 of chapter 4, look what, it, look what Paul wrote uh, on this subject. He said, in not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now again, if, if I were to be skeptical, if I, were, if I were a critic of the scriptures, I would say there's a, there's a massive contradiction here. Because I know the story. I know the rest of the story in the book of Genesis, and many of you do as well. Abraham absolutely wavered in his faith. Help me out. Man, y'all haven't helped me at all. Help me now. <laughs> Abraham absolutely wavered in his faith. I mean, if you don't consider sleeping with another woman that's not your wife wavering in your faith, I don't want to see what you would define as a, as a hiccup in your faith. Abraham, Abraham had sex with Hagar and procreated a child outside of the confines and sanctity of marriage. He fathered a child named Ishmael. Don't even get me started on that. But he fathered a child named Ishmael who became an affliction, became a thorn in the flesh of the nation of Israel to the promised seed of God. Ishmael became a constant adversary to the people of God because of Abraham's lack of faith. 
But, but the context of Romans 4, keep in mind, is justification by faith. And begins with the words, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So within the context, that means that old Abe didn't, it's not like Abraham never wavered in his faith. But if we're talking about imputation, in the moment when God gave Abraham that promise, Abraham believed him. He did. I think he believed with all his heart. I believe in that moment when when he received a word from God, which again, if we apply this to the gospel, in chapter 10, hate to get ahead of myself, but in chapter 10, Paul said, how shall they call on him whom they've not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. When Abraham received the word spoken from God, when Abraham received the promise of God, I'm convinced in that moment he believed with all his heart. He did. He put his faith in God. He trusted in God in that moment. But that doesn't mean Abraham's faith never wavered. And here's why this is important, once again, in case you're not following why this is an important point. It's important because some people will say, well, yes, but you have to hold on to the faith. Yes, you're saved by faith, but you have to hold on to the faith. And if you you waver in your faith or you stop having faith, then you will lose your salvation. We're not saved by works. They'll they'll resign to that. Of course, we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith, though, and so you've got to keep having faith. Well, tell that to Abraham. And tell that to the next ombre that we're about to talk about. I don't even know why that fit right there. but Because then we segue into the story of David. Now, let me tell you something about David. Well, let's read about him, and then I'll talk bad about him. It's okay. God's the one who gave me the material to talk bad about David. But let's read what it says about him. Verse 5 of chapter 4. But to him who works, I'm sorry, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Okay? Verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord, uh, to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. This is what David wrote in Psalm 31. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now that was David. David said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Amen, David. Amen, bud. Because here's what else David wrote. He said, if God should number sin, if God should keep an account of all the wrongs that we've done, nobody could ever stand in his presence. No one could ever stand in the presence of God with clean hands and a pure heart if God judged us based on our deeds and our thoughts and our motives and our, all those things. Nobody could stand in God's presence. Now, let me tell you something about David. I'm just being straight up. Now, I want you, I'm trying to put this in context, okay? Talking about being justified by faith. David's not in heaven today because David was always a good little boy. Now, we have some heroic stories about David. David and Goliath. He slew the, the bear in the wilderness and the lion, and then he fought Goliath. You know, five smooth stones and a sling, and we sing songs about him, right? Only a boy named David, only a little sling. All those things. Great tunes, by the way, if you're a kid. 
But if David showed up, use your imagination with me for just a minute. If David showed up to church here, and he happened to show up on a Sunday when I said, hey, we're looking for more people to volunteer in the nursery or the children's church department. If you'd like to volunteer and help teach the kids, man, see my wife, and we'll talk about that. If, we ha- if David went and signed up to teach kids' church at the Ridge Church in Sullivan, follow me, and we ran a background check, <laughs> David, king of Israel, would not be allowed to teach kids' church at the Ridge Church in Sullivan. I wouldn't even have him preach. If I knew he killed a dude because he was covering up a scandal. Are you following? Don't act all super like spirit. Oh, well, I think we should let David preach. Shut up. I would. Look, if I knew, if I knew that a guy had an affair with a woman and then instead of repenting of it and owning his mistake... Had the guy killed to cover himself, I'd be like, you know what, David? There's plenty of homeless missions you can preach in. They need guys in the jail ministry, but you ain't teaching kids' church. Do you follow me? So when we're, <laughs> I don't think you're getting it. Like, I don't, they have a big statue. They worship this guy, right? Big statue of King David right in the middle of, you go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, it's still there. Right? They worship the ground this guy walked on. And uh, look, wonderful guy, right? Obviously, good dude. I mean, he really was. It, it proves that we all have two sides. I believe, I believe David loved the Lord with all of his heart. I really do. He's called a man after God's own heart in the New Testament. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel. That's where we get most of the book of Psalms. Lovely guy. Unless he had a weak moment. And happen to just, you know, have a little affair and then kill a guy. You know what I'm saying? We all mess up. <laughs> I'm just saying. This is the example that Paul is using to illustrate what it means to be justified by faith. If David, if, if David had to stand before God and the severity of his, of his evil deeds would be weighed in the balance in comparison to the good things that he did, he'd be in hell. He committed murder. I mean, that's the one that everybody says when you talk to them about needing, needing to believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, you need to be saved. That's the one everybody goes, well, I never killed nobody. David did. And he's in heaven. He's saved. Because here's what you got to get. We're no better we're no better. So I've never committed murder. Yeah, but you've thought about it. It's, it's, it's been a consideration. He just happened to follow through with it. See, we're no better. And he's the guy, he's one of the people that God uses here in the book of Romans to illustrate what it means to be justified by faith. David was justified by his faith. They looked forward to the coming Messiah back in those days. We look in retrospect believing that God gave his son to die on the cross for our sins. And we trust by faith just like they did in the Old Testament. And so he uses David as an example. And then he uses us or the Apostle Paul and us. Chapter 4 verse number 23. Notice this. It says, now it was not written for his sake alone. So talking about Abraham and David. It wasn't written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. So he said, these are, these are our examples. 
It's not that you have to believe and keep on believing, though we should continue to hold out on our belief and, our, and hold on to our faith. We should do that, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But he said, look, it's about that moment when you trust in Christ. And here's how Paul articulated it later. Paul later went on to write down these words. He said, he said I, I'm persuaded that what God has promised, he's able also to perform. And then he said, I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So he said, God is the one who's keeping me. God is the one who's holding on to me. God is the one who, who has imputed the goodness of his son to my account. God is the one who has taken the sin off of my account. God is the one who is now holding on to that which I committed unto him. That moment that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 1 verse number 13 says that we were sealed unto the day of redemption. So it's not about me holding on and it's not about you holding on. There will be seasons when your faith wavers. I promise you, if you endeavor to walk with God for any length of time, if you make a commitment to stay, to stay true to God, I guarantee you, you have my seal of guarantee that there will come a time when your faith wavers. You will have the wind absolutely 100% knocked out of you. You'll get knocked down so low sometimes you won't even know if there is a God in heaven. Now, nobody wants to say that, but trust me, you'll walk through valleys when you'll wonder. And so do you think in those moments God's going to go, well, their faith wavered. I'm done with them. Boy, if they could have just held out a little longer. See, I'm not holding on to him. He's holding on to me. And I'm going to say more about that, but i got to get to it. That was the introduction. Let's finish reading verse 23. And, and, or rather, verse 24 of chapter 4, he says, But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up our Lord from the dead, who was, all, who, who was delivered up because of our offenses. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died because of our offenses. But he was resurrected because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, past tense, we present tense have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have, present tense, access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So let me say a few things about faith. Is that all right? I don't know why I ever asked that. I'm going to do it. We're just going to do this. But I want to I state some things about faith, and this is, the, this is the segue into the next section of our study. So now we're shifting from that was a Sunday school lesson, now we're going to have a little preaching, Okay. Um, so, so facts about faith. First of all, I want to say that, and, and, and mind you, when I say this, this is very important that you understand what I mean, but faith is not a work. Faith is not a work. In fact, faith and belief are synonymous in, in Scripture, okay? Faith and belief are synonymous in Scripture. Look again in chapter 4, verse number 4. Uh, it says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David. And he goes on to talk about that. And then again, we read just a moment ago in chapter 5, verse number 1. And I'm just showing you how interchangeably the words faith and belief are used here. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important that we understand faith and belief are synonymous. And, and now, so for, for clarification, sometimes, again, and I said this before, but sometimes in church culture, we throw words around as if everyone understands what we mean. So let me define the word works. When I say that we're not saved by works, I know, some of this, some of this is bottom shelf, okay, for you intellectuals, but stay with me, Okay. When we, when we talk about works, again, I think sometimes we just, we just assume that everybody knows what we mean. But, but here for definition, here's what the word works means. Okay, and this ain't Matt Dudley definition. This is Webster, so you can trust it. Take her to the bank. This is definition. Works means to perform work or fulfill duties regularly for wages or salary. Now, the reason why that definition, by the way, that's the primary definition of the word works, the reason why that definition is so important, so apropos to this context in this conversation is because as we read a moment ago in chapter 4, verse number 4, it says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, if, if you're working for it, you haven't received grace, you're working because you understand you owe a debt. And, 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 the, and the devastating reality, as, as Paul has already covered here in Romans, is once you realize that you, that you owe a debt, that debt is to, to fulfill righteousness and, and be, be holy. Once you realize that, you understand also, according to the law, that you, have, you don't have the power to do it. So it's a debt that you'll never pay off. That's why Paul later writes in chapter number 7, he said, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. In other words, Paul said, I stopped looking at, uh, at other people through the law, and I started looking at myself through the law, and when I did that, I realized that the law condemned me. Even though previously I was using the law to justify myself, and I was using the law uh, to sort of make, make myself uh, appear better than other people, but the truth of the matter is, when I looked at myself through the law, I recognized that the law slew me too. And so definition one, to perform work or fulfill duties regularly for wages or salary. That's what Paul's saying in chapter four, verse four. He says, now to him who works, the, the wages is, are not counted uh, as grace, but as debt. You're not receiving grace by working. That's not, the, works, uh, works are not the means into grace. Follow me? Works are not the means into grace. And again, this is why this is important. I, I don't know if you understand how many holes this punches in bad doctrine. And bad theology, but hear me, hear me very carefully. They'll say things like, well, yeah, you're saved by grace, but you have to do this to get into grace. This is a means into grace. You have to, do, you have to jump through this hoop and eat this and drink that and do that in order to get into grace. No, no. Paul says, now, if you're working, you're not working for grace. You're, working, you're trying to work off a debt, and you'll never pay it off because you're deficit. You're bankrupt. When it comes to righteousness, you're broke. You broke, okay? You broke. You'll never pay that debt. Now, definition number two, works means to perform or carry through a task requiring sustained effort or continuous repeated operations. Once again, chapter four, verse four, if you're trying to work your way to heaven, you will never stop working. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our Sabbath. He's our rest. There's so much here I don't have time to get into. Works, definition number three, means to exert oneself physically or mentally, especially in sustained effort for a purpose or under compulsion or necessity. Now, I, tried to, I thought of a million different ways I could illustrate this for you. To illustrate that faith is not a work, I thought about you know, bringing a chair up here and saying, you know, faith, faith is no more a work than me sitting and resting in this chair. Uh, but that seemed kind of lame. I'm a big critic of myself. My illustrations are dumb. 
And so I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this, and I couldn't think of a way. But, but, but here's, what, here's, here's the best way I know to illustrate faith. I want to say it to you like this. Faith is no more a work than, than the process of breathing air into your lungs is a work. That's faith. When we talk about believing, receiving Christ, being born again, putting, exercising your faith, putting your faith in Jesus, it's as simple as breathing air into your lungs. Now, when I, when I had that thought as, as, as an illustration of faith, I thought, you know what? I know a lot of things take place when we, when we breathe. Did you know that? <laughs> Earth-shaking stuff today, guys. But a lot of things happen when we breathe. And so, so I looked this up. Listen to this. Some of you medical nerds will get on board with this. When, when, when you breathe, when you inhale... Air containing oxygen enters your windpipe, passes through the bronchi. Am I saying that right? Cool. I knew I was. I just make sure you knew. And eventually reaches the air sacs. These air sacs are responsible for gas exchange. Nobody make jokes about gas, please. These air sacs are responsible. Okay, y'all know I'm going to. But anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> These air sacs are responsible for gas exchange. They, they look a bit like grapes at the end of the bronchial branches. Now, I don't have time to get into how Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. That's good stuff, right? That's good stuff right there. And we'll come back to it, though. They look a bit like grapes at the end of the bronchial branches. Healthy lungs have about 300 million air sacs in them. I didn't know I had 300 million anything inside my body. But just inside the lungs, we have about 300 million air sacs. Each air sac is surrounded by a network of fine blood vessels called capillaries. The oxygen in inhaled air passes across the thin lining of the air sacs and into the blood vessels. This is known as diffusion. The oxygen in the blood is then carried around the body in the bloodstream, reaching every cell. When oxygen passes into the bloodstream, carbon dioxide leaves it. Carbon dioxide, or CO2, is a waste product of cellular metabolism. You get rid of it when you breathe out, when you exhale. This gas is transported in the opposite direction to oxygen. It passes from the bloodstream across the lining of the air sacs into the lungs and out into the open. Now, if you didn't pick up any analogies in that, but here's the point. When you, when you receive air into your lungs, which, by the way, spirit in the Bible is also where we get our English word, the Greek and the Hebrew uh, for spirit is where we also get our English word breath or air. Did you know that? <laughs> I'm telling you, it's so good. Man, this is good stuff. If I have to just pause and appreciate my own preaching, I'm going to do that, okay? <laughs> this is so good. and it's, not, it's nothing I came up with. It's just the more you dig into this, it's just the truth is, is unbounded. Now watch. So just as when we breathe oxygen into our lungs, now you didn't, you didn't sit there, you're not sitting there right now going, okay, uh, pass over that thin lining. Oh, there you go. There you go. Okay. 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 Now disperse. 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 We got 300 million little air sacs that need to be fed. Now no, you get over there. One at a time. Okay. Now I want you get in, now get in the blood, now go to all the extremities. That pinky needs oxygen too. We don't even give it a second thought. Any more than when we receive Christ as Savior, 
We're justified, we're sanctified, we're promised glorification, there's propitiation, there's imputation, all those things that happen in a moment of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is why the Bible says, he that believes on him shall not be condemned. We are breathing in the life of God, and that's when we receive the Holy Ghost by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. Faith is no more work than just... Breathing in. Now, just for those, i got to run this illustration just a little bit further. Can you go with me? Now, somebody says, well, what if you, what if you hold your breath then? <laughs> Meaning, what if I stop having faith? What if I stop having faith? If faith is like breathing, what if I stop breathing? Well, I'm no medical expert. But I will tell you what will happen if you stop breathing. If you hold your breath and stop breathing, you'll pass out. You'll fall quite probably into the floor. And you know what's going to happen then? You're going to start breathing on your own. And it's in those moments when your faith fails that the Holy Ghost will rise up in your life and breathe life back into the deadness of your broken heart and revive in you what you could never do for yourself. This is why Paul said, I'm persuaded that what I've committed unto him, he will keep it. He's not going to let me go. This is why we're told that when we trust in Christ, we become sons and daughters in whom the Lord loves. He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That means if you backslide and you sin as a child of God, you definitely will face tribulation and problems. And you're going to sow some things that you're going to later have to reap. But it doesn't mean that God's going to give up on you. He'll draw you back in and he'll deal with you. And yeah, he might even have to take you out to the woodshed to get you straightened out. But he's the one that does the work. He's the one who does the work. He's the one. He's the one. Well, what do you do with Philippians chapter 4 when it says work out your own salvation with with meekness and fear and trembling? What do you do about that? Well, first of all, in the next verse, he explains that it's God working in us. But second of all, even if we don't go to the next verse, let's leave context out of it and just quote something out of context. That's okay. Let's do that for now. If it says to work out your own salvation, you can't work out what you don't have in. You can't work something out that's not there. You can't work out muscle you don't have. Trust me, I know. It's in you. Here's what Paul said, it's God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, point number two, all right, faith is not a work, 100%. Faith is not a work, but it activates the work of the Spirit. Faith is not a work in and of itself, but faith activates the work of the Spirit. Faith should be the driving force behind every move we make as Christians. It should. Faith should be the driving force behind every move we make as Christians. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Faith should be the driving force behind every move we make as Christians. That doesn't mean we throw off all sensibility. That doesn't mean we we don't exercise wisdom. That doesn't mean any of these things. But it does mean that faith ought to be the very thing that drives us forward as Christians. Now notice this in chapter 5 and verse number 1. Such a great truth. Chapter 5 verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? Therefore having been justified, past tense, by faith, we have peace, present tense, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By having this present gift of justification by faith in Jesus Christ, we can now live with the peace of God. You see how that works? Because I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, before, because I've trusted in him, now I possess this thing called the peace of God. And there's nothing quite like living in peace. In fact, I don't put too much stock in feelings. I think in, in Christian circles, we often put too much stock in feelings. In, in some Christian circles, other Christian circles, I've, they need some of that, Right? But, but we don't pin our faith in emotion or in the way that we feel. But I, I can definitely tell you this. The night that I got saved and put my faith in Jesus, the one thing I do remember as far as emotions were concerned is I laid my head on, the, on my pillow that night for the first time in years with peace in my heart. I can't tell you how many times I'd laid my head on the same pillow in the same bed and didn't know if I was going to wake up the next day. But that night I laid my head on my pillow and I had the peace of God in my heart that should I die in my sleep, I would be at rest in heaven with him. And so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that transcends so many things to do with, with life itself. I think that's really what everybody wants, don't we? Don't we just want peace? I, want, I like peace, dude. And I just watched that Jesus movie, so I'm like hippied out right now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Let's all t- let, can we take our shoes off? Y'all want to do that? So I saw some bell bottoms this morning. I mean, it's... Hippie revival, baby. But, but I love peace. I don't like war. I don't like conflict. I don't like battle. I don't like having these weird, you know what I'm saying, things with people. Do you? You like all the tension and drama? Kick the drama queens out. Y'all got to go. We, look, peace, man. I like peace. Peace, love, whatever. All right? But, but there's nothing like the peace that God gives. And this is why The Bible says it's peace that's beyond our comprehending, peace that passes understanding. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, um, A little over a month ago, on on Wednesday night, we worked our way through um, the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Um, And at the end of that study, I challenged those who would like to, to set a reminder in their phone to pray that prayer every day for a month. I didn't even ask for a show of hands of who wanted to do it. I just said, hey, just, just challenge if you'd like to do this, set a reminder in your phone every day to pray this prayer. And while you're praying it, think through it and pray you know, specifically for needs that you have and others have while you're praying. Don't just thoughtlessly recite it. But even if that's all you do, just, just pray this prayer every day. And, and one day last week, I was, I was praying through those words in Matthew chapter 5. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. I still quote it in the King James Version because that's how I memorized it. And uh, God honors Old English, by the way. So um, all those these and nows, that's that heavenly language that Paul talked about. I'm a joke, and that was a jab at, anyway, uh, King James only people. But anyway, 
Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then I got to that next part where it says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I've always, I've always found that statement to be a little peculiar because it doesn't say, forgive us our sins. Uh, now, in, in, I believe in Luke's gospel, it says it uses the word trespasses or transgressions and totally fine. Uh, but in Matthew's account, in, in, in most, most reliable versions, it says, it says debts or some, some form of that. And I got to thinking on that. I thought, well, why, is it, why does it say debt? Now, first of all, we understand, uh, again, from a judicial perspective as God's children, our sins have been forgiven. Um, but, but when it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, God reminded me that when we have faith that God has canceled our sin debts, then, then we can release from debt those who've caused pain in our lives too. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So that peace that comes by, by releasing other people from debt. Now, you might have to think a little bit about this, but, but as, I, as, I, as I considered my own heart, I realized that there were some people in my life that I, I still was holding a debt over their heads. Not even necessarily for wrongs, but think about this. Think about this principle, this concept. The Bible says if you loan somebody money, don't even expect to get it back. See, I know. That's not someplace I would say amen either. I'd be Googling it. Does that really say? It does say that. Just in principle. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with loaning money and, and receiving it back, but he just, it's just a concept. It's just a principle. He said, look, if you're going to loan somebody something, just loan it to them like you're giving it to them, and if you get it back, it's a bonus. But when we go around all the time and, and, and when we do things for other people, somehow often, maybe you're not as sinful as I am, but sometimes in the back of our mind, we're keeping tallies and saying, well, you know, that one time I did this for that person, I, I expect one day I'm going to get that in return. And it was like the Holy Spirit said to me, you just got to let go of the debt. Nobody owes you any. Do you understand? Do you know the feeling how freeing it is? To be able to live life without feeling like someone owes me something. That's, a, that's an amazingly liberating mindset. Nobody owes me anything. If I loaned you five bucks, you, you don't owe it to me. You don't owe me lunch. If I bought you lunch, you don't owe me lunch. Now, this is just for preaching, okay? This ain't like reality. <laughs> But we live that way, right? We live that way. We do something for somebody, and then we think, yeah, yeah, it'll come back to me. This whole pay it forward thing, oh, I'm gonna get, I'll get that back. Well, you might, but that's a really bad reason to do it. See, it's, it's, almost, it's, almost, like, it's almost like we do good just so God will have to give us something later. Now, think about this. Here's, here's, here's a very interesting verse. On, 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 along these lines. Oh, gosh, we're doing so good for time. You don't even need to look at your watch. Um, here's a very inter interesting verse, in my opinion. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse number 1 says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Again, that doesn't make sense to me. Think about what it says, okay? Picture, you have a loaf of bread. Y'all ready? I don't know why I have to do this. You have a loaf of bread, just throwing it, throwing out in the water. That's all it says. Don't commentate for me yet. 
That's all it says. Cast your bread upon the waters. Now, now, if, if it were me, I would say, you know, maybe, you know, maybe use, maybe use, uh, you know, a hook and some line, Lord. You know, I can ball that bread up. We can even ball it up big on a treble hook. You know, maybe dip it in some stink bait. Throw it out. You follow me, Lord? Are we? Are, are you tracking with me, Jesus? Okay, I know you thought bread was the way, but look, we can ball that bread up on a treble hook, dip it in some stink bait, maybe mingle that in as a binder, sinker, drop to the bottom. We might catch us something then. Throwing it on the, on the water, Jesus, doesn't make sense. Just casting it on, or, 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 or maybe we could just, you know, mix it with some chicken liver. Where are my redneck friends at? <laughs> I mean, is that how you fish? You just throw bread out? Whoop, whoop, whoop. I got better ideas. I got better ways of doing it. Some of you Hoosiers take pantyhose. A little weird, isn't it? Put that stink bait or some chicken liver and maybe mix it with some bread as a binder. You know, throw it out there. Then you might catch a catfish. You might get something. You trout fisherman, you can do a little something, a little, you know, trout fisherman's kind of for, you know what I'm saying? That's for women and children's all I'm getting at. Trout fishing. <laughs> Only catch five. Whatever. <laughs> but I can think of better ways to catch a fish than to throw my bread on the water. But here's the point of that verse. Sometimes God calls on us to take calculated risks. That would be a calculated risk. Especially if you were poor. What God's saying is, just like Moses' mama had to let him go into the Nile River in that little basket... Think about the faith it took for that little woman. He said, you just, you just let it go and trust me with it. And that's faith that activates the Holy Spirit in a person's life. That subtle little hint. I got one more point, though. I got one more point. Don't look at Blake, as cute as he is. I got one more point. Faith. Faith is not a work, right? Say it with me. Faith is not a work. Number two, faith is not a work, but it does activate the work of the Holy Spirit. Number three, faith will inevitably produce action. Faith will inevitably produce action. Now, I'm not even quite ready to talk about that yet because we're not there. We're getting there, but I have to say it because, you know, all my... All my lovers and fans out there will come at me and say, yeah, yeah, well, faith without works. Blah, blah, blah. I know. Faith without works is dead. But, 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 the, but, the faith, but the works are the produce, not the seed. True faith will produce works. True faith will produce, as the Bible says, fruit in your life. There'll be evidence. Faith is the substance. It's the evidence of things not seen faith will inevitably produce action you can't say you believe in something and not and not act on it you follow me but when we're talking about the technicalities what it really looks like to be saved we're saved by grace through faith without works the works don't save you your works have nothing to do with your salvation now in fact you are free to live for Jesus because he's he has given you life 
And he's given you freedom. And he's given you peace. And he's given you power through the person and the presence of his spirit. And if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, you say, I don't know how to believe. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to call on him. You, you actually do. You do. That's not some Jedi mind trick. You do. You know how to pray. You know how to call on God. It's as simple as taking a breath and saying, God, I do believe. I do believe. I believe that your son died on the cross for me. I, I, I believe that he died because there was no other way for me to be saved. And I'm trusting you. I'm believing you. I'm receiving you. And you don't have to have all those terms memorized, but I'm telling you that's what will happen the moment you put your faith in Jesus. You'll be justified. God will, God will deliver you from the guilt and the sin that you've carried if you'll trust him. Let's stand together. Our Father, which art in heaven, we honor you. We praise your holy name today, God, and we ask that you'd move in this place. I pray that you'd speak to every heart. Father, we want to pull out all the stops and let you be God in our presence. We look to you, Father. We trust in you. We yield to you. And I pray that you would touch every heart, every life. If there's someone here today who does not know Christ as Savior, pray that today would be that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.